Appendix A. Economics, from reason to intuition. This then is a further sense in which economics can be truly said to assume rationality in human society. It makes no pretense, as has been alleged so often, that action is necessarily rational in the sense that ends pursued are not mutually inconsistent. There is nothing in its generalizations which necessarily implies reflective deliberation in ultimate valuation. It rests upon no assumption that individuals will always act rationally. But it does depend for its practical raison d'etre upon the assumption that it is desirable that they should do so. It does assume that, within the bounds of necessity, it is desirable to choose ends which can be achieved harmoniously. Lionel Robbins Part A. Epistemology Epistemology asks this. What can man know and how can he know it? Modern economics as a discipline suffers from the same crucial limitations found in all other post-Kantian fields of scholarship. Ultimately resting on a foundation of pure contingency and chaos, the economics profession affirms its rationality as its raison d'etre. Yet, economists cannot escape the fundamental rational antinomies of Kantian thought. Unity versus plurality, structure versus change, law versus freedom, science versus personality, deduction versus induction, theory versus brute factuality, definition versus application. When pushed to the limits of exposition, every economist finally rests his case on intuition or experience to bridge the unbridgeable Kantian gap between mind and matter. Reason collapses into mystery at the heart of the economist's task. What is the economist's task? This is a little hard for the economist to say exactly. James Buchanan in 1964 cited two classic definitions from a pair of University of Chicago economists. Jacob Viner, economics is what economists do. Frank Knight, and economists are those who do economics. The problem to use Cornelius Van Til's phrase is that for most part, economists are not epistemologically self-conscious. In 1952, Prince Macklup, while acting as chairman of an American Economic Association's workshop in methodology, remarked, open quote, Usually only a small minority of American economists have professed interest in methodology, the large majority used to disclaim any interest in such issues, unquote. Things have only become worse since then. The total triumph of mathematical economics has created a new, highly specialised economic technician who is buried in an esoteric universe of his own. Walter Adams remarked, open quote, A methodological addict he shows singular unconcern with the world as it exists. His standard of success, his payoff matrix, is to impress the taste makers of an ever-narrowing professional speciality. He is more and more cut off from specialists in other fields and finds it increasingly difficult to, co- to communicate to the lay world. The result is a sort of apartheid. Economists are no longer able to see the real world, and the world no longer can understand what the economists are saying. Close quote. The quality of scholarship is increasingly Alexandrian. Endless unreadable articles which have a half-life of six years or less, falling into oblivion with rare exception almost immediately. Yet the basis of personal and departmental advancement is in the publication of such articles in a handful of specialised journals. New left economists, whether Marxian, extreme Galbraithian, 
or whatever, temporarily challenged the establishment economists to re-examine their calling in the late 1960s. But nothing came of this. Still, there was far more interest, critical interest, in epistemology since 1965 than could have been reasonably predicted in 1963. As Brenner commented, in 1964 he could not find any indication of radical economics in America. Open quote. Only five years later, in late 1969, the end of ideology had itself ended. Unquote. Walter Weisskopf could fight the good Galbraithian battle against methodological neutrality and sterility with his lively and unread Alienation and Economics, 1971. But criticisms against irrelevance are, for the profession, annual rituals that have zero effect. The fact of the matter is, as Broffin Brenner stated it, open quote, the general economist may be travelling the way of the dodo or passenger pigeon highway to extinction. He survives, as I am a survivor, as a dilettante, journalist or elementary principles teacher, or as an exotic variety of multiple specialists whose several specialisms fall in more than one of our ordinary classification boxes. Unquote. And it does not help the situation to read Joseph Schumpeter's remark that, open quote, Economists in particular, much to the detriment of their field, have attached unreasonable importance to being understood by the general public. Unquote. Yet he was eminently readable and a generalist. Two decades later, he would have found less reason to bother with writing that sentence. But the evil had already been accomplished. He got his wish. One thing is certain, however. Since 1965, we have not heard speeches like the one John Kennedy delivered at Yale University in 1962. It was one of those typical end-of-ideology performances by the consummate pragmatist of the era. Open quote. Today, these old sweeping issues have largely disappeared. The central domestic problems of our time are more subtle and less simple. They relate not to basic clashes of philosophy or ideology, but to ways and means of reaching common goals to research for sophisticated solutions to complex and obstinate ideas. What is at stake in our economic decisions today is not some grand warfare of rival ideologies which will sweep the country with passion, but the practical management of the modern economy. What we need are not labels and clichés, but more basic discussion of the sophisticated and technical questions involved in keeping a great economic machinery moving ahead. I am suggesting that the problems of fiscal and monetary policy in the 60s as opposed to the kinds of problems we faced in the 30s, demand subtle changes for which technical answers, not political answers, must be provided. Unquote. As it turned out, can-do liberalism couldn't, and the United States government bogged down in a fruitless war in Vietnam. We saw the nation blow apart. Anyone wishing to read a post-mortem on JFK's faith in technocratic solutions can go through David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. The naivete of this kind of worldview is officially dead, if not operationally defunct, due to tenure and other forms of guild control in the economics profession. The established men may believe in technocratic wisdom, but they are at least more humble today. Part B. What is economics? There have been a number of influential economists over the years who have outspokenly denied the validity of the question. Velfredo Perito, the late 19th century social scientist, Gunnar Medell, and T.W. Hutchinson were among these. Schumpeter, whose history of economic analysis is a classic, was another. 
Others, most notably Lionel Robbins, vigorously denied this form of scepticism. When open disagreement can exist on so fundamental a point as a definition of what constitutes a science, the extent of the intellectual confusion is indicated. Drawing hermetically steeled definitional boundaries is not possible, given the nature of human thought and the inescapable fact of unity and diversity in all created structures. But men need operational definitions for their work. Buchanan's warning in 1964 is significant. Open quote. Economics as a well-defined subject of scholarship seems to be disintegrating, and realistic appraisal suggests that this inexorable process will not be stopped. Close quote. Israel Kurtzner's very fine study of The Economic Point of View, 1960, surveys several definitions of economics that have been employed by members of the profession since the 17th century. The study of trade, of wealth and welfare, of greed, of getting the most from the least, of money and measurement, of economic choice in a scarce world, of human action. But there is one common feature that stands out over three centuries, and William Letwin called attention to it forcefully. Open quote. Nevertheless, there can be no doubt that economic theory owes its present development to the fact that some men, in thinking of economic phenomena, forcefully suspended all judgments of theology, morality and justice, were willing to consider the economy as nothing more than an intricate mechanism, refraining for the while from asking whether the mechanism worked for good or evil. That separation was made during the 17th century. Unquote. The autonomy of academic economics from metaphysics, namely any revelation from God, is the hallmark of all contemporary economic practice. Perhaps the strongest statement on behalf of the total autonomy of economics from came from Ludwig von Mises, who equated liberalism and free market economics. Open quote. Liberalism is based upon a purely rational and scientific theory of social cooperation. The policies it recommends are the application of a system of knowledge, which does not refer in any way to sentiments, intuitive creeds for which no logically sufficient proof can be provided, mystical experiences, and the personal awareness of superhuman phenomena. They, the policies, are radically opposed to all systems of theocracy, but they are entirely neutral with regard to religious beliefs which do not pretend to interfere with the conduct of social, political, and economic affairs. Unquote. The most widely respected work in the area of modern economic epistemology is Lionel Robbins' An Essay on the Nature and Significance of Economic Science, 1932. Open quote. The economist studies the disposal of scarce means, close quote, he wrote. Open quote. Economics is the science which studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means which have alternative uses, unquote. Economics is a science of human choice among scarce alternative resources, according to Robbins. Biblically, we would say that he accepts the existence of the effects of Genesis 3 verses 17 to 19, which separates him from the utopians, Marx, and many of the new left economists. So far, so good. But it does not stop there. Everyone who claims to be a modern scientist wants his colleagues to regard him as utterly neutral and objective. Of course, he admits in theory that this is ultimately impossible, citing Heisenberg, Kuhn, and so forth to show he is epistemologically literate, but at least all good scientists are neutral and objective with respect to revelation or religion. Robbins was no lesser part of this tradition of neutrality. Open quote. 
The economist is not concerned with ends as such. He is concerned with the way in which the attainment of ends is limited. The ends may be noble or they may be base. They may be material or immaterial, if ends can be so described. But if the attainment of one set of ends involves the sacrifice of others, then it has an economic aspect, unquote. Ultimate ends are scientifically irrelevant. The academic economist is primarily, perhaps entirely, a technician. Robbins believed that in sealing off economics from questions of ultimate ends, he had accomplished a necessary intellectual task, but in fact he opened up an overwhelming problem for epistemology, one which almost no economist has had the courage to face publicly. Frank Knight was an exception. Open quote. The scientific view assumes that changes in man can be completely accounted for in terms of external and prior natural conditions. A theory which recognises ends and allows man real initiative in changing himself or his environment is in contradiction with a scientific conception of human nature and transfers a discussion to a different realm of discourse. In the writer's opinion, the contradiction is insurmountable in the present stage of intellectual development. Philosophy and experience have not taught us concepts which enable us to think comfortably in terms of what experience and common sense force us to recognise as real and valid. Unquote. This may be the reason that Armin Alkayan, a leading economist and formerly chairman of the department at UCLA, refused to use the word choice in front of a colloquium of graduate students and scholars in 1969. I was one of them. He hedged by using demonstrated preference or similar terms. The concept of choice implies an unscientific, methodologically unverifiable concept of human freedom, or so he believed. There is nothing in Robin's work to indicate that he understood the issue he was raising. He simply went on, open quote, Economics is neutral as between ends. Economics cannot pronounce on the validity of ultimate judgments of value, unquote. And on, open quote. Applied economics consists of propositions of the form if you want to do this, then you must do that. Unquote. The economists may only advise men in terms of their stated ends. I suppose the economists in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union in the 1930s would not have questioned the national ends of liquidation or mass imprisonment. He only would have examined the technical questions concerning the least expensive means of accomplishing these ends. Economics is pure technique and therefore value-free, you see. Economists promise not to tell moralists what to think in terms of the realm of ends, and by this treaty they gain autonomy for their own technical activities. Moralists are supposed to agree not to influence the form or content of economics. As Friedman put it, open quote, positive economics is in principle independent of any particular ethical position or normative judgment, unquote. Economics is therefore rational, as contrasted to moralistic or value-laden. Why this religious quest for neutrality, for a value-free science? George Stigler, Friedman's colleague who also won the Nobel Prize in Economics, offered one straightforward explanation. Open quote, the reason for assigning such an austere role to economics is this. It is a fundamental tenet of those who believe in free discussion, that matters of fact and logic can, eventually, be agreed upon by competent men of goodwill. That matters of taste cannot be reconciled by free discussion. Assuming this to be true, it is apparent that if value judgments were mixed with logic and observation, 
a science would make but little progress. F.A. Hayek announced a similar faith in human reason. Speaking of those who favour socialistic solutions, he wrote, open quote, Yet if we have not convinced them, the reason must be that our arguments are not yet quite good enough, that we have not yet made explicit some of the foundations on which our conclusions rest. Unquote. It is more than a little ironic that Hayek and Stigler, the proponents of faith in reason, both supporters of free market ideas, both colleagues at the University of Chicago, although not in the same department, could agree on the whole question of reason in the social sciences. Stigler was an inductionist, while Hayek's counter-revolution of science is one of the more eloquent pleas for a deductivist approach. When groups of Chicago School of Economists and Austrian School Economists used to get together in the late 1960s and early 1970s, they had to avoid the whole issue of epistemology if the conference was not to break down entirely. So much for the efficacy or supposedly screening out value judgments for the sake of sweet reason and ultimate intellectual accord. Part C. Reason, Inductive. The vast bulk of economists regard themselves as essentially empirically oriented inductivists. They are men who rely ultimately on the facts. They are not empiricists in the old German historical school mould, however, that late 19th century group of Prussian academic socialists, led primarily by Gustav Schmoller, was initially committed to the premise that economic theory is always relative to time and place, and that only by exhaustive monographic studies of cultural history could scholars come to judgments about economic theory. The approach of this school was holistic and organic. All of human life had to be studied, not simply an isolated segment known as economic life. This approach was so utterly fruitless in the production of economic theorems that it was generally abandoned by 1900. There were just too many data to handle coherently. The unsophisticated positivism of the German historical school could not sustain itself against the demands of intellectual specialization. In order to examine human history, the investigator has to have an idea of what he is looking for, which in the area of economic history means that he needs some basic economic theory. Facts do not speak for themselves, and laws do not leap off the pages of historical data. Today's empirical economist is committed to the idea of economic theory. His model is generally that of the natural sciences. Friedman's description of positive economics is standard. Open quote. Its task is to provide a system of generalizations that can be used to make correct predictions about the consequences of any change in circumstances. Its performance is to be judged by the precision, scope, and conformity with experience of the predictions it yields. Unquote. He went on to state that, that the decisive test, open quote, is whether the hypothesis works for the phenomena it purports to explain, unquote. The test is therefore factual, open quote, only factual evidence can show whether it, theory, is right or wrong, or better, tentatively accepted as valid or rejected, unquote. Economics is empirical, inductive, a posteriori, fact-oriented. Facts cannot prove a theory, but they may fail to disprove some theories. The process is facts, theory, facts, theory, endlessly, always in a refining process. If you can find a better theory, at no extra cost, choose it. Friedman then confronted a basic post-Kantian antinomy, the problem of defining theory, 
fact and explaining the interrelationship of each to each and both to the human mind. Open quote. More generally, a hypothesis or theory consists of an assertion that certain forces are, and by implication others are not, important for a particular class of phenomena, and a specification of the matter of action of the forces it asserts to be important. We can regard the hypothesis as consisting of two parts. First, a conceptual world or abstract model simpler than the real world, and containing only the forces that the hypothesis asserts to be important. Weber's ideal type, Gary North. Second, a set of rules defining the class of phenomena for which the model can be taken to be an adequate representation of the real world, and specifying the correspondence between the variables or entities in the model and observable phenomena. These two parts are very different in character. The model is abstract and complete. It is an algebra or logic. Mathematics and formal logic come into their own in checking its consistency and completeness and exploring its implications. There is no place in the model for and no function to be served by vagueness, maybes or approximations. The air pressure is zero, not small, for a vacuum. The demand curve for the product of a competitive producer is horizontal, has a slope of zero, not almost horizontal. The rules for using the model, on the other hand, cannot possibly be abstract and complete. They must be concrete and, in consequence, incomplete. Completeness is possible only in a conceptual world, not in the real world, however it may be interpreted. In seeking to make a science as objective as possible, our aim should be to formulate the rules explicitly insofar as possible and continually to widen the range of phenomena for which it is possible to do so. But, no matter how successful we may be in this attempt, there inevitably will remain room for judgment in applying the rules. Each occurrence has some features peculiarly its own, not covered by the explicit rules. The capacity to judge that these are or are not to be disregarded, that they should or should not affect what observable phenomena are to be identified with what entities in the model, is something that cannot be taught. It can be learned but only by experience and exposure to the right scientific atmosphere, not by rote. It is at this point that the amateur is separated from the professional in all sciences, and that the thin line is drawn which distinguishes the crackpot from the scientist. Unquote. First, how coherent is the model? Friedman asserted that it can be consistent and complete. I suspect that he was here giving more credit to a rival discipline, mathematics, than the discipline's best minds ever claim for it. Kurt Gödel's hypothesis denies that a mathematical proposition can be simultaneously consistent and complete, which is precisely what Friedman naively asserts is an ideal for the logic of the economic model. Second, how do the rules for using the model actually connect it with the data? Why is such a contact possible? Eugene Wigner, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, has called attention to this very anomaly. It is an unreasonably effective correspondence which secular scientists simply cannot explain. If the rules are incomplete, how can they be fitted with the complete model? Third, the real world, which Friedman was careful to put in quotation marks, is really the product of our senses as interpreted by our minds. In Kantian language, concepts without percepts are empty, while percepts without concepts are blind. So, the data are never raw. There is no operational brute factuality. The data are already interpreted as we receive them. 
How do we know, for example, when a perceived trade cycle is nothing more than the product of our own ingenuity? The great mathematical economist Ragnar Frisch once demonstrated the existence of a particular economic cycle before a group of professional colleagues, a regularity where none had been perceived before by any of them. Harlan McCracken describes the finale, open quote, when the group was thrilled and almost dumbfounded by the results, they were mildly informed that the Omega operations had been performed on a relief map of Europe, unquote. Finally, what of Friedman's appeal to the capacity to judge and experience? Here we have an appeal ultimately to some form of intuition as the means of bridging the gap between the model and the perceived historical data, which may or may not be in conformity to the economic world out there. There is no strict one-to-one application of the abstract mental model and perceived reality, for then the model would be as com- complex as reality itself, swallowed up in the immensity of brute factuality. Yet it is believed to be in conformity to the basic outline of the already perceived facts. But how do we know? How can we have such faith in the coherence of our minds, the orderliness of nature, and the intuitive ability of our minds or whatever it is to bridge the gap? We must exercise faith, a remarkable quantity of faith. Without it, there would be no economics. So our neutral rationalistic practitioners simply put this statement of faith in the back of their minds and forget it. Epistemology at the truly crucial points is not a popular topic amongst secularists. Ultimately, Friedman asserted, open quote, the construction of hypotheses is a creative act of inspiration, intuition and invention. Its essence is the vision of something new in familiar material, unquote. He was quite correct, of course, but this does not answer the question, How is man so endowed? For what purpose does he have the gift? How, in fact, are we sure on rational grounds that he does have it? We need a theory to explain the phenomenon, and intuition, being non-rational at bottom, cannot be made to fit any rationalistic theory. We think we perceive men in the activity of linking theories and facts, but can they do this accurately, really, and if so, how? In effect, the secularist replies, He just can, that's all. Faith. Faith, wonderful faith. Is there some accepted, fairly stable body of acceptable theory? Probably not, says Friedman. Open quote. Observed facts are necessarily finite in number. Possible hypothesis, infinite. I do not understand this, Gary North. Furthermore, any theory is necessarily provisional and subject to change with the advance of knowledge. Unquote. In short, all we can say somehow in, in faith is that Open quote, some parts of economic theory clearly deserve more confidence than others, unquote. Try and find one that all economists agree on. You can check these statements by comparing them with facts. But which facts? Facts selected by which theorist? Not all facts, since our knowledge can never be exhaustive. Remember? We cannot perceive facts without a theory. Yet within the shifting sands of knowledge there is somehow structure enough to establish an academic discipline, or at least maybe there is. Van Til put this problem in a starkly penetrating analysis. Open quote. If man has made the final reference point in predication, knowledge cannot get underway, and if it could get underway, it could not move forward. That is to say, in all non-Christian forms of epistemology, there is first the idea that to be understood, a fact must be understood exhaustively. It must be reducible to a part of a system of timeless logic. But man himself and the facts of his experience are subject to change. 
How is he ever to find within himself an a priori resting point? He himself is on the move. If we do not with Calvin presuppose the self-contained God back of the self-conscious act of the knowing mind of man, we are doomed to be lost in an endless and bottomless flux. Unquote. Is there a coherent world out there, out beyond the powers of our perception? Does it, or some part of it, conform to the logical structure of our minds? Is there some means by which we can discover such order? How do we find the rules that might allow us to make deductions from our theories and predictions about the facts? The facts are like beads for the secularist, said Van Til, and the theories are like string. But on the premises of the secularist, the beads have no holes in them, and the string is infinitely long. Furthermore, there may be more than one string. The only way to string them is unknown, and this the secularist calls intuition. Friedman was no different from epistemologists in all other academic disciplines. Either theory is swallowed up in the facts, or else the facts are swallowed up by the theory, or else theory remains wholly removed from all facts. Van Til's words are inescapable. Open quote. The point we are now concerned to stress is the atomistic character of the non-Christian methodology. The idea of system is for it merely a limiting notion. It is merely ideal. What is more, it must forever remain but an ideal. To become reality, this ideal would have to destroy science itself. It would have to demolish the individuality of each fact as it came to know it. But if it did this, it would no longer be knowledge of a fact that is different from any other fact. The method of non-Christian science then requires that to be known facts must be known as part of a system. And since the Christian idea of a system, as due to the counsel of God, is by definition excluded, it is man himself that must know this system. But to know the system, he must know it intuitively. He cannot know it discursively, because discursive thought, if it is to be in contact with reality at all, must partake of the piecemeal character of non-rational being. Each individual concept that pretends to be a concept with respect to things that have their existence in the world of time must partake of the de facto character of the facts themselves. Unquote. Intuitive knowledge is all that is left for man, and intuitive knowledge, not being discursive, participates in the chaos of random factuality, that is, is not rational knowledge. Friedman, ending as he did with intuition, destroy the logical character of hypothetically rational inductive economic science. At the heart of rational inductive thought is a bedrock of irrationalism. Without a doctrine of divine creation, the inductive rationalist built his foundation on the sand of pure chance, and Whirl does not give up his kingdom. I have not singled out Friedman as a stickman. He was an eloquent defender of modern economic science and his chapter on methodology has become standard in the profession. Other expositions echo his. Greg Seber, a mathematical economist, has raised similar issues. He wrote that, open quote, Classical economics made the tremendous discovery that the quantifiable features of a modern economy can be represented by a general mechanistic model, capable of mathematization and pre- presumably prediction, unquote. Positive economics, officially neutral with respect to values, can predict the future. But with precision comes control, Seba argued. New forms of macroeconomic planning are possible through the use of input-output techniques developed by both Soviet and Western economists. Open quote, Here the distinction between technical and economic problems obviously no longer applies. Unquote. But then a problem appears. 
which had been held back by the hypothetical value neutrality of positive economic theory. Open quote. Unlike classical theory, it is not confined to the question what the terminal state of the economic system will be, given its initial state and its laws of operation. Normative ec economics can simultaneously consider the initial and the terminal state and select the minimum path from one to another. The theory of allocations has the markings of a rigorous, predictive, general theory of planning." Unquote. Hayek demonstrated eloquently in his Road to Serfdom 1944 that central planning can never be neutral. It is based on the value preferences of the central planners. Positive economics, because it involves knowledge, necessarily involves power, and power is never neutrally applied. Seba saw this clearly, and he drove home his point. Open quote. Control then consists of prediction offered as purely technical, neutral, powerless advice. The sons of Adam Smith fear control of man over man, and rightly so, for such control implies a dehumanization of the human realm. The ethos of classical economics revolts against the consequence, but its epistemology works towards it. So long as a theory is unpredictive, the conflict can remain unresolved and even undetected. But should the theory become predictive, it may yet turn against its origins and become instrumental in subverting economic freedom." Unquote. The nature-freedom antinomy in all economic thought reasserts itself once again. On the one hand, knowledge of the world is seen as giving men power, and therefore freedom, from an impersonal, capricious universe. Yet, with the advent of power, man falls under the sway of his own creation, like Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. Man, defined as being no more than a natural creature, becomes as subject to his own laws as nature is. Secular law eats away at the foundations of secular freedom. Classical economics destroys itself in an orgy of planning. The attempt at being epistemologically neutral to God and all values becomes dust in the mouth. Values never truly banished from the science's closed universe reappear in power. Part D. Reason Deductive For almost a century, deductive reasoning in the social sciences has been out of favour. Its defenders are limited ex almost exclusively in economics to the followers of Ludwig von Mises. Inductive reasoning, supposedly the characteristic of the natural sciences, has been adopted by most modern economists. Now, however, the perception on the part of some social scientists of the implications of Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, 1962, has begun to shake their faith in the paradigm of purely inductive research. It has become more and more obvious to the readers of Kuhn's book that there is no scholarship apart from intellectual presuppositions. Academic guilds form around an accepted body of these premises and they in turn become the foundation of normal science. The drudge-like repetitive science of the vast majority of men in any given area or discipline. Thus, research is guild-oriented and essentially a priori. The questions asked, the ways in which the questions are to be answered, the form of presentation of the answer, are all determined by the prevailing definition of the particular discipline as set forth by the academic guild. Thus, Kuhn's analysis argues science is never purely inductive, objective, or neutral. It is governed by the presuppositions that are thought to be rational and inescapable. 
From time to time, the younger members of the guild do escape them, overturning the accepted paradigm. This constitutes a scientific revolution. The writings of Ludwig von Mises constitute the strongest case for pure deductive rationalism. He took seriously the second half of Kant's slogan, Percepts without concepts are blind. There is no scientific investigation by the social scientist that is not in terms of fixed intellectual categories. His was the consistent Kantian world of humanism. Man is the starting point. Open quote. Panta Ray, everything is in ceaseless flux, says Heraclitus. There is no permanent being. All is change and becoming. For epistemology, the theory of human knowledge, there is certainly something that it cannot help consider as permanent, namely, the logical structure and praxeological science of human action structure of the human mind, on the one hand, and the power of the human senses, on the other hand, unquote. Mises brought back the old debate between Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides held, in Van Til's words, open quote, that only that can exist which is fully subject to the laws of human logic. In other words, Parmenides assumes that the reach of human logic is the limit of possible existence, unquote. But Heraclitus countered that the essence of the world is flux, beyond the static categories of universal human reason. Along with all post-Kantians, Mises held to both positions. Logic is static and can understand some things out there, but there is some aspect of flux and chaos in the universe, and it is here that man finds his freedom from totalitarian humanistic law. In other words, as far as human nature is concerned, open quote, epistemology must look upon it as unchanging, unquote. Man needs an unchanging point of reference, Mises believed, if he is able to say anything accurate about anything. The unchanging point of reference is the human mind. Open quote. Kant, awakened by Hume from his dogmatic slumbers, put the rationalistic doctrine on a new basis. Experience, he taught, provides only the raw material out of which the mind forms what is called knowledge. All knowledge is conditioned by the categories that precede any data of experience both in time and in logic. The categories are a priori. They are the mental equipment of the individual that enables him to think and, we may add, to act. As all reasoning presupposes the a priori categories, it is vain to embark upon attempts to, uh, to prove or disprove them. Unquote. What are these categories? They are independent of biological evolution. Evolution is continuous while the categories appeared, in man, discontinuously. They are not innate ideas. Open quote. They are the necessary mental tool to arrange sense data in a systematic way and to transform them into facts of experience. Close quote. They are pragmatic. Open quote. Only those groups could survive whose numbers acted in accordance with the right categories, name, that is, with those that were in conformity with reality and therefore, to use the concept of pragmatism, worked. Unquote. Apparently, had the world been a different kind of world, those using the categories would not have survived, and the categories would have disappeared, not somehow evolving into something else. Where categories are concerned, life is one huge crapshoot. You either have them or you don't. Or paraphrasing one scholar, open quote, when you're hot, you're hot, and when you're not, you're not. Unquote. The reason that the categories function is that the universe is orderly, in part. Open quote. No thinking and no acting would be possible to man if the universe were chaotic. 
that is, if there were no regularity whatever in the succession and concatenation of events. In such a world of unlimited contingency, nothing could be perceived but ceaseless kaleidoscopic change. There would be no possibility for man to expect anything. Unquote. Therefore, he concluded, open quote, Reasoning is necessarily always deductive. All human knowledge concerning the universe presupposes and rests upon the cognition of the regularity in the succession and concatenation of observable events. It would be vain to search for a rule if there were no regularity. Unquote. This is empiricism's Achilles' heel. It rejects the category of regularity in the microscopic sphere, looking instead for statistical laws of probability in aggregate events. Empiricists fail to search for explanations in terms of individual human action. It is a misuse of the methodology of the natural sciences on the assumption that people are not acting beings. Empiricism postulates pure randomness of individual events. Mises came to the heart of the epistemological problem. Open quote. Following in the wake of Kant's analysis, philosophers raised the question, how can the human mind by a prioristic thinking deal with the reality of the external world? As far as praxeology, the science of human action, is concerned, the answer is obvious. Both a priori thinking and reasoning on the one hand and human action on the other are manifestations of the human mind. The logical structure of the human mind creates the reality of the action. Reason and action are congeneric and homogeneous, two aspects of the same phenomenon. Unquote. Mises was far more epistemologically self-conscious than most contemporary economists. He knew the ground on which all modern secularists must stand if they are to defend the idea of modern science from total chaos. And so he affirmed, as Kant did, the creative ordering power of the human mind. This, as Van Til argued throughout his career, is the heart of modern Kantian thought. Mises acknowledged it and built upon it. The historical sciences, however, are different from praxeology and its most developed subdivision, economics. History is concerned with the flux of human life, not regularities. Open quote. What distinguishes the descriptions of his history from those of the natural sciences is that they are not interpreted in the light of the category of regularity. Unquote. Men must look to history for meaning, unlike natural events. Men act in terms of final causes. The interpreter searches for meaning in the minds of the participants. What did it mean for them? Open quote. The autonomy of history, or, as we may say, of the various historical disciplines, consists of their dedication to the study of meaning. Unquote. The goal is radical autonomy. Open quote. History is man-centered. It has nothing to do with any point of view of God or some quasi-God. Close quote. Man provides the meaning. God's knowledge is not available to man. However, the mind is bounded by the limits of understanding. The meaning of the whole is beyond us. There are no general laws in history. Historical events are entirely unique. The historian must select the relevant facts. Yet despite this process of selection, historiography must be neutral. He wrote, open quote, A historian must first of all aim at cognition. He must free himself from any partiality. He must in this sense be neutral with regard to any value judgments. Unquote. The historian must select, yet be neutral. He did not explain how this is possible. Neither has any historian. The rock-bottom data that resists classification in terms of the categories of the social sciences, 
are those that are historically unique. Here the historian must use sympathy or understanding in order to make these data intelligible. However, such understanding must not contradict the teaching of neutral social science. No matter how many historical documents testify to the existence of a devil, open quote, no appeal to understanding could justify a historian's attempt to maintain that the devil really existed otherwise than in the visions of an excited human brain. Close quote. The same, of course, is true of any relationship between witches and the devil. How objectivity is to be guaranteed or even thought to be possible in the historical sciences is never explained. How does the historian know that his sympathetic understanding of the motives or hopes of past individuals has any relationship with the past? How can he be certain that his understanding links up with theirs? There can be never such assurance. Furthermore, how can the bedrock data of history be related to any system of general understanding? How is it possible to make sense out of the infinite data of history? Mises assumed too much for the historical disciplines. He gave too much credit to the ability of the irrationalist powers of the Kantian noumenal understanding to make intelligible judgments and statements about Kant's phenomenal realm. How do we link the a priori categories of the mind with the external reality of the social sciences? On this point, Mises was forthright. We cannot explain this connection. The scientist needs ultimate presuppositions that cannot be proven. Life and death are mysteries. Open quote. Science, which is dependent on both on discursive reasoning and on experience, does not present us with a unified picture of the world. It reduces phenomena to a number of concepts and propositions that we must accept as ultimate, without being able to establish a connection between them. It proves incapable of closing the gap that exists between the system of the science of human thought and action and the system of the sciences of physical nature. It does not know how to find a bridge between sentience and motion, or between consciousness and matter. What life and death are elude its grasp." Unquote. There is an inescapable dualism in Mises' Kantian universe, and Mises was perfectly willing to admit its existence. Open quote. But as long as we do not know how external physical and physiological facts produce in a human soul definite thoughts and volitions resulting in concrete acts, we have to face an insurmountable dualism. In the present state of our knowledge, the fundamental statements of positivism and monism are mere metaphysical postulates devoid of any scientific foundation. Reason and experience show us two separate realms, the external world of physical and physiological events, and the internal world of thought, feeling, and purposeful action. No bridge connects, as far as we can see today, these two spheres. Identical external events ex result sometimes in different human responses, and different external events produce sometimes the same human response. We do not know why. Unquote. But, if a gap of total ignorance exists between the external event and human will, then the will is totally separated from the external world. This is the most fundamental of all Kantian dualisms. Action, argued Mises, open quote, is the outcome of a man's will. Of course, we do not know what will is. We simply call will man's faculty to choose between different states of affairs, unquote. This seems to be the equivalent of Friedman's intuition. It is a mysterious bridge between thought and action, between stimulus and response. Secularists can never be sure whether this relationship is active, thought leading to action, or passive, response to a stimulus. 
How do we know if our a priori mental concepts correspond with the facts of the external world? Open quote. The question whether or not the real conditions of the external world correspond to these assumptions is to be answered by experience. Unquote. Experience. We are back to Friedman's intuitional experiential link. We are back to testing once again, testing on the assumption that there is the mind-matter link. Mises acted in faith that this mystical link exists, although he denied any mysticism in such an affirmation. Open quote. Science is sobriety and clarity of conception, not intoxicated vision, unquote. But what is experience? How does it relate mind and external matter? Is it the same as will? Is it the same as intuition? How sure are we of the correspondence of the two realms? Not very, open quote. But if the answer is affirmative, all the conclusions drawn by logically correct praxeological reasoning strictly describe what is going on in reality, unquote. If the answer is in the affirmative, our a priori mental concepts correspond with data, some data, that is, the relevant data, of the external world. Here is a huge if clause in Mises' epistemology. It is in fact a statement of faith incapable of proof, as he admitted, and yet the very intellectual foundation of his, a priori, rationalism. Our ignorance of the nature of this link between mind and matter is the source of our personal freedom. On the one hand, our faith in its existence is the source of our knowledge and power. Here is the Kantian nature freedom antinomy in its sharpest form. We need power to escape the chaos of nature, to gain freedom as men in nature, yet this power destroys our freedom, or threatens to. Mises wrote, open quote, We do not know how out of the encounter of a human individuality, that is, a man as he has been formed by all he has inherited and by all he has experienced, and a new experience, definite ideas result and determine the individual's conduct. We do not even have and surmise how such knowledge could be acquired. More than that, we realise that if such knowledge were attainable for men and if, consequently, the formation of ideas and thereby the will could be manipulated by in the way that machines are operated by the engineer, human conditions would be essentially altered. There would yawn a wide gulf between those who manipulate other people's ideas and will and those whose ideas and will are manipulated by others." If autonomous man can use his mind to shape nature, why can't an elite of power-seeking men use science to shape society's masses? Here is the heart of the dilemma sketched by C.S. Lewis in his Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength. It is an inescapable contradiction in all post-Kantian thought. Secularists must affirm the existence of the mind-matter link, yet they dare not affirm it. Within the framework of this antinomy, man's ignorance of the nature of this link, indeterminacy, protects him from the manipulation by other men. Yet, it is the determinacy of the link that allows him to control nature of which man is said to be a part. Thus, we are said to be able to rationalise only a few segments of reality. Open quote. Reason and science deal only with isolated fragments detached from the living whole and thereby killed. Unquote. Mises then retreated into Kantian mysticism in order to preserve man's freedom and living humanity. Open quote. This personal experience of wholeness, unity and infinity is the loftiest peak of human existence. It is the awakening to a higher humanity. It alone transforms everyday living into true living. It is not vouchsafed to us daily or at all places. 
the occasions on which we are brought closer to the world spirit must await a propitious hour. Unquote. To recapitulate, the foundation of economic reasoning is the existence of universal timeless categories of human logic. All facts require theories to interpret them. There can be no uninterpreted factuality for men to deal with intellectually. Thus facts cannot refute accurate theories since they have existence only in terms of theories. The theories are autonomous. Open quote. They are not subject to verification or falsification on the ground of experience and facts. Close quote. On this issue, Mises was forced to appeal to experience in answering the question concerning the existence of the mind-matter link. Thus, he both affirmed and denied experience as a means of checking the validity of his theorem's applicability. Experience in some necessarily unstated way links theory to fact, yet it cannot criticise theory. But it can somehow warn theory. Open quote. If the facts do not conform the theory... The cause perhaps may lie in the imperfection of the theory. The disagreement between the theory and the facts of experience consequently forces us to think through the problems of the theory again. But so long as re-examination of the theory uncovers no errors in our thinking, we are not entitled to doubt its truth, unquote. And experience can criticise bad theory, open quote. Precisely because the phenomena of historical experience are complex, the inadequacies of an erroneous theory are less effectively revealed when experience contradicts it than when it is assessed in the light of correct theory. Close quote. But these inadequacies are apparently revealed in part, though less effectively than by theory, through the contradictions of experience. It is impossible to give a precise definition of experience as found in Mises' writings. On the one hand, we are asked to believe that science is value-free since, open quote, no standard of value of any kind is contained in the system of economic or sociological theory or in the teachings of liberalism, which constitute the practical application of this theory to action in society, unquote. On the other hand, we are not supposed to regard as in any way value-laden the following statement, open quote, Every individual desires life, health and well-being for himself and his friends and close relations, close quote. Conclusion, open quote, to the man who adopts the scientific method in reflecting upon the problems of human action, liberalism must appear as the only policy that can lead to lasting well-being for himself, his friends, and his loved ones, and indeed, for all others as well. Only one who does not want to achieve such ends as life, health, and prosperity for himself, his friends, and those he loves, only one who prefers sickness, misery, and suffering, may reject the reasoning of liberalism on the ground that it is not neutral with regard to value judgments. Unquote. In contrast, the Bible states explicitly, But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Proverbs 8 verse 36 Even if all men were to agree about the true nature of health, joy, and the good life, it does not follow that all men truly want these things. Mises' hypothetical neutrality is uncritically naive. He held to a value-free science that in turn presupposes agreement among all men concerning the good life. What he assumed is the universal validity of the goals of Western civilization, which is in itself an overwhelming mental abstraction. Open quote. Of course, the objections the economists advance to the plans of the socialists and interventionists carry no weight with those who do not approve of the ends which the peoples of Western civilization take for granted. Those who prefer penury and slavery to material well-being and all that 
can only develop whether as material well-being, may deem all these objections irrelevant. But the economists have repeatedly emphasised that they deal with socialism and interventionism from the point of view of the generally accepted values of Western civilization. Unquote. While Western civilization may well have been the product of a worldview based on the idea of the sovereignty of the God of the Bible, a possibility that Mises did not mention, today our universe is closed to God, he insisted. Open quote. It is not to be denied that the loftiest theme that human thought can set for itself is reflection on absolute questions. Whether such reflection can accomplish anything is doubtful. Unquote. Open quote. Our own thinking is utterly powerless to discover anything whatever about what such a superhuman or divine being would think. But within the cosmos in which our action is effective and in which our thinking paves the way for action, the findings of our scientific reasoning are so securely established as to render meaningless the statement that, in a broader setting or in a deeper sense, they would have to lose their validity and yield to some other cognition." Unquote. God and his revelation are therefore irrelevant for the content of economic science, since, open quote, whatever firmly withstands the logical scrutiny of our reason can in no way be refuted by the assertions of metaphysics, unquote. In short, open quote, we may leave aside the genuine dogmas such as creation, incarnation, the trinity, as they have no direct being on the problems of interhuman relations, unquote. We can say nothing about God at all. However, God is wholly other from man. He is incapable of action, being perfect. He is socially irrelevant. The only universals for man are the universal categories of his own mind. Without these, men could not think or act. So these have to exist. Man's dignity stems from his freedom. Yet he lives in a determinate universe in which universal laws rule. Still, open quote, the main fact about human action is that in regard to it, there is no such regularity in the conjunction of phenomena. It is not a shortcoming of the sciences of human action that they have not succeeded in discovering determinate stimulus response patterns. What does not exist cannot be discovered, unquote. Yet, that such patterns may exist, open quote, in the present state of human science, it is impossible to reduce the emergence and the transformation of ideas to physical, chemical or biological factors. It is this impossibility that constitutes the autonomy of the sciences of human action. Perhaps natural science will one day be in a position to describe the physical, chemical and biological events in which the body of the man Newton necessarily and inevitably produced the theory of gravitation. The sciences of human action by no means reject determinism. The objective of history is to bring out in full relief the factors that were operative in producing a definite event. History is entirely guided by the category of cause and effect. In retrospect, there is no question of contingency. The notion of contingency as employed in dealing with human action always refers to man's uncertainty about the future and the limitations of the specific historical understanding of future events. Unquote. In principle, there is no contingency. All is determined, and natural science may fuse with human science to produce the society of total planning. It is only a question of gaining adequate knowledge. There is a Kantian dualism between determinism and indeterminism. Man needs to preserve both his power and his freedom. Open quote. 
Free will means that man can aim at definite ends because he is familiar with some of the laws determining the flux of world affairs. There is a sphere within which man can choose alternatives. He is not like other animals inevitably and irredeemably subject to the operation of blind fate. He can, within definite limits, divert events from one course they would take if left alone, unquote. Man is therefore morally responsible. The question is, to whom? Open quote, Comparing himself with all other beings, man sees his own dignity and superiority in his will. Unquote. But Mises had already admitted that we do not know what the will is. It fills the gap between external causality and the rational categories of human thought. And man loses his freedom once that bridge is erected. Men can control the responses of others once we know how the link is to be made. So, free will therefore means simultaneously that we cannot bridge that gap, that we cannot be controlled. Our so-called free will requires a determinate universe to hold off nature's blind fate, and it needs an indeterminate universe to hold off the controllers. Mises, as all post-Kantians, was impaled on the horns of the nature-freedom dilemma, also known as the personality-science dilemma. In short, it was Kant's dilemma. Mises had no consistent theory of law, no link between mind and reality other than experience and will, both left undefined. Yet in his humanistic confidence, he said of the natural sciences, open quote, they provide the only mental tool that can be used in the ceaseless struggle for life. They have proved their practical worth, and no other way of knowledge is open to man, no alternative is left to him, unquote. No alternatives by a priori dictum, and this cannot be refuted by theology or facts. This is the closed universe of 19th century neo-Kantian rationalism. It is overconfident even in its all-encompassing contradictions. Part E. Living with Dualism Unlike Mises, Professor Frank H. Knight, died 1972, had a sense of the intellectual dualisms of secular thought. He was also a Neo-Kantian. He separated the natural sciences from the human sciences in terms of epistemology, something that Paul Samuelson refused to do. Social science must, open quote, strive to tell the whole truth to recognize all the facts, unquote, in its quest for exhaustive knowledge. Yet, we are involved in an intellectual antinomy, the science ideal versus the ideal of free human personality. Open quote, as far as science is concerned, Free will, which is the only real dynamism, is either an illusion or simply a methodological limitation, unquote. Free will is of very limited scope in life, he affirmed, in spite of the fact that it is infinitely important. Here is the basic dilemma of all attempts at explaining social causation. Open quote. There is equal insistence that causality is an active principle, and, on the other hand, upon concrete methods of problem-solving which are scientific in the sense of natural science as purely empirical, phenomenalistic, and positivistic. The main criticism of the book, R. M. McIver's Social Causation, is that the author sees both horns of this intellectual dilemma, but fails to recognize it and to see it that it has no real solution. Unquote. How do we link mind and external reality? Again, Knight admitted there is no secular, rational solution. Open quote. With regard to the relation between deduction and observation, or intelligence and the senses, 
in our knowledge of nature, there is not much that should need to be said. Surely anyone who has made any progress at all in the study of philosophy, or even in private reflection about its problems, can be assumed to know that any simple antithesis between observation and inference is utterly untenable, if not downright foolish. The question as to the primary or immediate data of consciousness is perhaps the main, perennial, unsolved and probably unsolvable problem of the theory of knowledge as a whole. Unquote. Thus, since it cannot be solved, it is downright foolish to bring it up any longer, at least if the proposed antithesis is simple. We must live with our inescapable intellectual contradictions. Then, how do we know the facts of economic scarcity or the idea of best apportionment of scarce resources? We know, open quote, by living in the world with other intelligent beings. We neither know them a priori, nor one-sided deduction from data and sense of observation, unquote. We know by living. What kind of knowledge is economic knowledge? Open quote. Methodologically considered, economics is a highly abstract, concrete, deductive science, similar to geometry or to mathematical mechanics, but in addition its data are intuitive in a far higher or pure sense than is true of mathematics itself." Unquote. We are back once again to intuition. Economists get, always get back to intuition. Then how relevant are Friedman's categories of prediction? Not very, answered Knight. Open quote. A more fundamental weakness of inductive prediction in economics is that empirical, that is statistical, data never present anything like an exhaustive analysis of phenomenal sequences down to really elementary components, and the correlation of and extrapolation from composite magnitudes or series can never be very reliable." Unquote. Theory or fact, where do we start? How do we string together the infinite number of whole-less beads with our infinitely long string of theory? Schumpeter simply concluded that we have to push very, very hard on the string. Open quote. It stands to reason that these two activities are not independent of one another, but there must be an incessant give and take between them. Unquote. In short, open quote, there is not and there cannot be any fundamental opposition between theory and fact-finding let alone between deduction and induction, unquote. Then why the endless battles between inductivists and deductivists? And how can you solve the problem of fitting facts with the proper theories if you deny that the problem even exists? Alfred Marshall, the influential 19th century Cambridge economist, wrote that an economist, open quote, needs the three great intellectual faculties, perception, imagination, and reason, and most of all, he needs imagination, unquote. He is echoed by Kenneth Boulding, open quote, Decision-making by instinct, gossip, visceral feeling, and political savvy may stand pretty low on the scale of total rationality, but it may have the virtue of being able to take in very large systems in a crude and vague way, whereas the rationalized processes can only take subsystems in their more exact fashion, and being rational about subsystems may be worse than not being very rational about the sub about the system as a whole, unquote. Finally, we have the testimony of Michael Arbib, open quote. Any science that supposedly captures reality in two or three equations is inadequate to describe the systems formed by both brain and society, systems with billions of variables. 
Thus it would seem that, given the incomplete state of our formal theories, we must complement them with our everyday knowledge as members of society. In short, our rational analysis of society must strike a balance between precise description of certain subsystems and, quite frankly, intuition and feeling about other problems. Unquote. Modern man has no epistemology. He wants to stand on balanced ground, but where is balance to be found? What are the criteria of true balance? How does one apply these criteria to the data of the external world? How does one go about proving the existence of such criteria of balance? The whole epistemology of modern man collapses into intuition, feeling, and endless measurement of increasingly useless minute data. Knight argued that one thing that scientists need is a sense of corporate honour. Open quote, Without a sense of honour as well as special competence among scientists, if, say, they were all charlatans, there could be no science, unquote. To support the superstructure of rational science, we have to have honesty, indeed honour, an essentially feudal military concept. Science rests on ethics. Can ethics be neutral? If not, value-free science rests on value-laden assumptions about man, honesty and fairness. Economic science is not and cannot be autonomous. It therefore cannot be rational. It is intuitional and ethics-oriented. Its secular neutrality is a sham. Epistemologically, there is simply no legitimate way for a post-Kantian economist to defend their affirmation of neutrality. Neutrality implies a fixed, straightforward, universally recognized link between the external world and the logic of the human mind. But it is this link that is both affirmed and denied by modern philosophers of the social sciences. By appealing to intuition again and again in order to fill the gap between mind and matter, the modern social scientist must abandon his confidence in neutrality. The noumenal realm of will, feeling, intuition or experience is non-rational by definition. Kantians can say nothing about its operations. What goes on in the noumenal realm is closed to pure reason, that is, the logical and mathematical reasoning of phenomenal science. All is mystery in Kant's noumenal realm, as Richard Kroner has shown so well in his book Kant's Weltschung, 1914. Logical neutrality implies a fixity of reference, and the noumenal realm is a zone of pure contingency, total chaos as far as logic can determine. It is the realm of Kant's God, Kant's ethics, Kant's things in themselves. Once washed in the chaos of intuition, neutrality emerges as a myth. The determinacy of logic erodes in the acid sea of chance. There is absolutely no likelihood that the a priori approach of Professor Mises and the a posteriori approach of Professor Friedman will ever be reconciled, in spite of the fact that each approach ultimately appeals to the irrational and the intuitive in the crucial task of uniting the laws of thought and the world beyond. From Parmenides and Heraclitus to Mises and Friedman, the basic opposition has in no meaningful way been bridged, despite the stupendous effort of intellectuals to overcome it. Nevertheless, on the most fundamental of all issues, Parmenides and Heraclitus could join hands, just as Mises and Friedman did. The issue of human autonomy. Van Til put it quite well. Open quote. It is not the differences between them, but the fact that all of them, whatever their differences, have in common the assumption of human autonomy that is basic to an understanding, even of their internal differences. 
I do not speak of the autonomy of theoretical thought, but of the pretended autonomy of apostate man. It is this and, as it appears to me, basically only this, which all schools of apostate thought have in common. Assuming this autonomy, apostate man gives a a rebellious covenant-breaking response to the revelational challenge that he meets at every turn. The face of the triune God of Scripture confronts him everywhere and all the time. He spends the entire energy of his whole personality in order to escape seeing this face of God. Unquote. Conclusion The Bible tells us what mankind is apart from grace. Blind, rebellious in need of salvation, perverse. Every man requires limits on his thought processes, balanced to use Arbib's concept, and this means authoritative revelation. He is unable to find such a balance on his own. He needs biblical law to help him construct social and economic institutions, each with its proper legitimate sphere of authority. Men are not autonomous, and by claiming full autonomy they hurl themselves into the intellectual void of intuition. The faith of the secular economist in the full autonomy of the discipline is a shaky faith indeed. This should not give comfort to the pietist or the Bathian who is antinomian to the core anyway. There are far too many of both groups who are unwilling to discover the common grace or restraining grace of secular economists like Mises, Friedman or Knight. Brushing off their scholarship with a brief comment like the following gets us nowhere. Open quote. They are just secularists, so they have nothing to teach us, so we can adopt guild socialism that is neither intelligent nor revealed in the Bible, but we like it because it sounds radically Christian. Unquote. There is no social hope in an antinomian retreat into the vague socialism of the German historical school or other anti-theoretical economics systems. Where Mises and Friedman say things that are in conformity to the Bible, we should take their careful exposition seriously. We have the responsibility of recognising what is and what is not in conformity to the Bible's concrete revelation whenever we read the words of secular economists. Abandoning reason in the name of vague, Christian feelings of charity is no substitute for prayerful scholarship into the implications of our acts. Christian reconstruction will not be the result of pietistic singing about the joy, 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 joy down in, our, in the heart, nor will it be the result of endless affirmations of empty, duyuvidian spheres. It will be the result of the concrete application of biblical law in the external spheres of life, and the application of sovereign grace in the hearts of men. Antinomianism, whatever its form, leads to cultural impotence. Because the secular economist has no epistemological cloak, does not in and of itself clothe the Christian in robes of purple. The Christian has to make his own clothing. In order to make myself perfectly clear, as President Nixon used to say, let me spell out precisely what I mean. The slogan of too many Christians has been, No creed but the Bible. No law but love. Another is the familiar, we're under grace, not law. This is pure antinomianism. It makes Christianity utterly impotent to challenge the scholarship of the secularists. It makes it impossible to construct intellectual or institutional alternatives to the various secular systems. We are not under the curse of the law, but we are under its limitations for our external conduct, including social conduct. The progressive sanctification of the Christian, fighting the good fight, pressing on to the mark for the prize of God's high calling, Philippians 3 verse 14, is in terms of law. If a Christian is an economist, 
then his own progressive sanctification must be in terms of the Bible's revelation concerning both the theory and facts of economic thought. The mind-matter link is there because he is made in the image of God, and God comprehends his own creation. The rebellion of Adam made God's verbal revelation necessary in order to restrain man's apostate thought, including economic thought. Without the Bible and its concrete economic instruction, the mind-matter link will inevitably be warped. The theories of economics as well as the facts selected in terms of these theories will be an error sooner or later. This is a slightly revised version of my essay with the same name which was published in Gary North, editor, Foundations of Christian Scholarship, Essays in the Van Til Perspective, Valicido, California, Ross House, 1976.